Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 305. It's titled, How Safe Are Banks? Last month, I had several Plus members share an article with me that was published in The Atlantic titled The Coming Bank Collapse. The subtitle was The U.S. Banking System Could Be on the Cusp of Calamity. This time, we might not be able to save it. The article was written by Frank Partnoy. He's a law professor at UC Berkeley. That's a pretty ominous title. We want to look at the article as well as the state of U.S. banks and banks around the world, should we be worried? Given the pandemic, is the banking system poised to collapse? I was especially interested in the article because it came out right after I had increased my allocation to preferred stocks and added a preferred stock ETF to the Money for the Rest of Us Plus model portfolios. The particular preferred stock ETF that we use by iShares has about 26% allocated to banks. And if banks are on the cusp of this calamity, that does not bode well for preferred stocks. In the article, Partnoy is particularly worried about banks' exposures to an esoteric security called a collateralized loan obligation, or CLO. We discussed CLOs back in episode 206 in May 2018. Collateralized loan obligations are asset-backed securities issued by special purpose vehicles, or SPVs. The SPV purchases leveraged loans, which are non-investment-grade bank loans that have been syndicated. A bank will make a loan to a non-investment-grade company, a higher-risk company, and then sell that loan into the marketplace. Many of those purchasers are CLOs. There's over a trillion dollars of leveraged loans outstanding. And most are held as part of these collateralized loan obligation structures. The way it works is that SPV sells debt and equity securities that comprise the CLO. Those securities are backed or collateralized by the leveraged loans. The CLO has multiple layers or tranches that are sold separately. The debt layers are rated by credit quality. So the senior layer is AAA. There are lower rated debt layers, known as mezzanine layers. And then there's an equity layer, which is unrated. The payments on the underlying leveraged loans, those payments are pooled together and flow in order. The first payments go to the senior AAA layer, then to the lower rated layers. And then finally, to the equity layer. And that is known as a waterfall. The debt tranches are over-collateralized. 
in that a CLO might have issued $500 million in debt securities as part of the CLO that are backed by $625 million worth of leveraged loans. With the additional $125 million in loans funded from selling the equity tranche. Each CLO has about 150 to 225 loans. And because the leveraged loans themselves are floating rate notes, their interest rates will fluctuate as short term interest rates change. The debt tranches within a CLO are also floating rate, so there's some protection if interest rates rise. Now, because of this waterfall structure, the equity tranches take the first losses, then the lower-rated debt tranches. And finally, if it gets to that, the senior AAA-rated debt tranche suffers losses. That hasn't happened before. The S&P does a global CLO report looking at default rates. And from 1996 to 2018, the overall default rate for CLOs was 0.5%. The worst vintage year was CLOs issued in 2008. There, the default rate was 1.7%. There have been no defaults in CLOs issued between 2009 and 2018. And from that 1996 to 2018 period, there has never been a default for the AAA tranche and only one default for the AA tranche. Now, as you know, we are in a pandemic and defaults within the high yield bond and leveraged loan space is increasing. Fitch estimates the 12 month default on leveraged loans is 4% and that more than $200 billion of leveraged loans will de default through year end 2021. That equates to a two year cumulative default rate of 15%. Just because leveraged loans are defaulting doesn't mean all the different tranches of a CLO is experiencing a default. I saw a report on the Wall Street Journal from mid-May that showed about 10% of CLO managers have been diverting cash flow away from equity investors and going to the debt tranches, which means there have been defaults that are starting to impact that junior equity tranche. What is different from this cycle, though, is leveraged loans are more risky, and we discussed that in episode 206. The covenants on these loans are less restrictive, the credit quality is lower, the financials are weaker, and so we should expect defaults to increase. The question is, will CLO defaults and other defaults and other loans impact banks to where we should be worried about our savings or investments that we might have in banks in bank securities, including their common stock and their preferred stock. How much exposure do banks have to CLOs? The Bank for International Settlement estimates that across the globe, banks hold about $250 billion worth of CLOs at the end of 2018. And the Financial Stability Board estimated that for the 30 global systemically important banks, average exposure two leveraged loans and CLOs, so not just CLOs, was about 60% of their capital or their equity. I will explain bank capital in more detail in a few minutes. The Federal Reserve last month estimated that depository institutions 
and bank holding companies own about 28% of the $339 billion of Cayman Island U.S.-issued CLOs. Many CLOs are originated in the Cayman Islands, more than half of U.S. CLOs. Federal Reserve estimates that 95% of the exposure that banks have in CLOs is to senior tranches, the AAA-rated tranches. Partnoy recognizes that in the article. He writes, since the mid-90s, the highest annual default rate on leveraged loans was about 10% during the previous financial crisis. If 10% of a CLO's loans default, the bottom layers will suffer. But if you own the top layer, you might not even notice. Three times as many loans could default and you'd still be protected because the lower layers would bear the loss. Now he points out that leveraged loans are risky. They're not AAA. The average credit quality is single B and the risks are high. But due to this collateralized loan obligation structure with different tranches and the waterfall concept and the over-collateralization, the AAA tranche has been historically a very safe place to invest. CLOs are run by professional money managers that are selecting the bonds to be included. One of their assumptions is what is known as default correlation. Will all the different loans in different regions of the country and different sectors, to what extent will they default at the same time? Partnoy is worried that the correlation of defaults will be much higher than estimated. He also references a report by the Financial Stability Board, which is an international body that monitors and makes recommendations about the global financial system. This was a report on CLOs, and they wrote, Moreover, limited information on the indirect linkages between banks and non-banks makes it difficult to assess possible risks from spillovers and interconnectedness and their systemic implications. In other words, if junior tranches of CLO default, is there some linkage between that and the exposure that banks have that might not even be related to owning a CLO tranche? There are a lot of unknowns when it comes to CLOs. Partnoy is worried that defaults will be significantly more than they have ever been because of the pandemic. He believes banks, even despite the new regulations, are taking way more risk than is recognized. I don't necessarily agree with that. If we look at the new regulations that have been put in place for banks since the great financial crisis, these systematically important banks are monitored very closely by the Federal Reserve. And we're going to go through that regulation and the stress tests that are done because it's important to understand how is the banking system regulated and is it safe? Can we feel confident about the banks? John Walters of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond wrote a very good paper on the regulatory framework for banks. He pointed out that a bank's capital is the difference between the value of a bank's assets and its liabilities. He wrote, if the organization encounters financial troubles that reduce the value of its assets, for example, some of its loan customers default on their loans, the bank can still repay its liabilities, meaning avoid insolvency and continue operating. As long as the decline in asset values is smaller, than the amount of capital. If a bank has a higher capital balance, that reduces its risk of failure because 
the capital acts like a cushion to absorb losses, including losses from collateralized loan obligations. Banks are measured by their capital ratio. How much capital do they have relative to their assets? Capital consists of common stock, some preferred stock, and retained earnings. Banks prefer to use debt capital, be it deposits or straight-up borrowing money, because the interest expense on debt is tax-deductible, whereas dividends paid on equity capital are paid from after-tax earnings. So equity capital is more expensive. The higher the leverage a bank has, the greater its profits. But the risks are greater because in bad times, loan defaults can increase and that can potentially lead to bank insolvency if there are enough losses to wipe out the capital. There are a number of capital ratios. These are formulas to look at how much of a capital cushion does a bank have. The first one is called the Common Equity Tier 1, and it's common stock plus retained earnings and some convertible bonds so that can be converted into common stock, known as COCOs, divided by risk-weighted assets. Different assets have different risk weightings. The way that that risk weighting is calculated is a percentage is applied to the particular asset. So cash, for example, has 0% risk. Any cash a bank has as an asset That's multiplied by zero. And as a result, a bank with a bunch of cash would have lower risk-weighted assets. And when you divide the capital by those risk-weighted assets, it would have a higher capital ratio. Loans get 100% risk weighting, but past due loans, it's 150% risk weighting. So if a bank has a lot of past due loans, that will mark up the value of its risk-weighted assets and reduce its overall capital ratio. Public stock or public equity exposure that banks have, it gets a risk weighting of 300%. So consider it very risky. What about CLOs? Well, they fall under a category called securitizations. And the risk weighting ranges from 20% to 1,250%. Generally, it's at 20%. If it's senior, AAA-rated CLO, it gets a 20% risk weighting because, as we pointed out, defaults have been very, very low. But banks also have a due diligence requirement. And if they're not able to satisfy their bank regulator that they understand the risk and the performance of the CLO, if it's starting to underperform, they have to take a higher risk weighting. In other words, these are not ignored. CLOs are factored in to the capital ratio calculations of banks. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, 
Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. This risk-weighted approach to managing banks was first adopted in the U.S. in 1992 as part of a global bank risk framework called Basel One. Basel I set the Tier 1 capital to risk-weighted assets, including off-balance sheet assets, to 4% of assets, and total capital had to be 8%. I mentioned that the common equity Tier 1 is common stock plus retained earnings and some convertible stock. Overall, Tier 1 includes preferred stock, so common stock, preferred stock, retained earnings, and some convertibles. Basel II was adopted in December 2007, it went into effect April 1st, 2008, and it required banks to provide more detail with regard to the risk weightings. Those asset risk weightings were more refined with the same capital ratio requirements. After the great financial crisis, there were new Basel capital standards called Basel III. This was implemented as part of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act of 2010 and began to be implemented in 2013. It raised the Tier 1 capital amount to 6% from 4%. Total capital to risk-weighted assets was still 8%. There were some additional requirements, a capital buffer for U.S. banks with more than a billion dollar in assets. This was above the 8% total capital, another 2.5%. So banks had to have an additional 2.5% capital conservation buffer that if they fell was the trigger, it was an early warning, they had to begin to limit what they could pay out in distributions from retained earnings. In other words, reduce their dividend payment. In addition, the Federal Reserve adopted what is known as counter-cyclical buffers. 
depending on the macroeconomic environment, that if the economy was getting worse, the Federal Reserve could require an additional buffer and just did that last month. They performed stress tests on banks and the banks did fine. And we'll go into detail on that in a minute. But the Federal Reserve also said that banks had to suspend share repurchases and cap their dividend payments. They couldn't pay a dividend in excess of their average quarterly earnings between third quarter 2019 and second quarter of 2020. So banks have to conserve even more capital. In fact, Wells Fargo announced today that they were cutting their dividend because they had a loss and couldn't make the dividend payment. Other banks are not increasing their dividend payments. Last month, the Federal Reserve announced the results of a stress test. So banks run risk models. They're analyzed by the Federal Reserve to see how they would perform under what is known as a severely adverse scenario. For example, GDP, the output in the economy, falls by 8.5% from the pre-recession peak. Unemployment increases to 10%. Interest rates fall for Treasury bills to 0%. Equity markets fall 50%. Volatility, as measured by VIX, jumps to 70 Investment-grade corporate bond spreads, the incremental yield for corporate bonds, increases to 4.5%. So a severe economic environment. And in that environment, banks run models to see how much they would lose, how much would defaults increase on their loans, and what would their projected losses be. In addition, they ran, this time, some additional stress tests based on the coronavirus pandemic. With unemployment rate peaking between 15.6 and 19.5%. So even more severe. What were the results? Well, losses obviously would be huge. With the standard severe adverse scenario, losses across 33 biggest banks in the U.S. were projected to be $552 billion. And that obviously would impair their capital. But their capital ratio the common equity tier one capital ratio, which was 12%, recall the minimum is 4%, according to Basel III standards, 12% at the end of Q4 2019. Under the stress test scenario, the minimum it got was 9.9%. And the minimum of the tier one capital, which includes preferred stock, got the 11.4%. And total capital, the minimum was 14%. And again, the ratio for that, the minimum is 8%. In the additional, even more severe stress test, the losses for those biggest banks got as high as $700 billion. And the total capital ratio fell between 9.5% down to 7.7%. That 7.7% would be below the 8% minimum. But the banks wouldn't be going bust. They would have to raise more capital. The Economist did a report and looked at these new Basel III regulations, and they looked at the stress test, and they estimated what if the old rules had been in place, Basel II, and these severe economic scenarios were used. And they estimated that this capital ratio could have dropped for some of the banks to as low as 1.5%. So they would effectively be insolvent or very close to it under the old framework. But with this new framework, with the higher capital ratios, the buffers, the ability of the Fed to demand banks not 
increase their dividends. Banks are safer. Banks are being run more conservatively. Banks are already provisioning for losses based on what's going on with the pandemic. J.P. Morgan announced this week that they set aside $10.5 billion in the second quarter to cover potential losses. Their CEO, Jamie Dimon, says this is not a normal recession. The recessionary part of this you're going to see down the road. Wells Fargo set aside $10.6 billion for future loan losses in the second quarter. Citigroup, $7.9 billion. Now, I looked at the Federal Reserve for delinquency rates, and they only have data through Q1, and that was just released in mid-June. Total delinquency rates at banks in the U.S. is 1.59%. That's past due and non-current. It got over 7% in the great financial crisis. There will be more defaults, but banks seem to be prepared. We don't know what the default rates will be with leveraged loans. Fitch has made estimates. We don't know what they will be for CLOs. Frank Partnoy is convinced that there's things lurking on the balance sheets of banks that will come out. He might be right. When we compare the way banks are regulated now, how they're run, they're much lower levels of leverage. Things are going to have to get really, really bad to get to what we saw with bank failures during the financial crisis. During that 2008-2009 period, there were bank failures every week. 160 U.S. banks failed just in those two years. Last year, across the U.S., there were only four bank failures, and we've had only one in 2020. As depositors in banks, we have protection. We have FDIC insurance. Other countries have insurance for bank deposits. And so your deposits, if you keep it under $250,000, they're not at risk. The risk, if banks get into trouble, is your investments in banks. Do you own their common stock? Do you own preferred stock? Preferred stock, dividends have to be paid before common stocks. And if the dividend is not paid, in most cases, it's cumulative. And so the dividend just accrues and then it has to be paid before the common stock dividend has been paid. If the economic recession gets worse, then preferred stock will sell off which means yields will go higher. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to lose all your money because that would require the banks to go insolvent. We'll see if Partnoy's right. I am cautiously optimistic. But the pandemic has to get under control in the U.S. Some of the early indicators, the real-time data, is showing people are acting more cautious again. They're not willing to go out as much. Some of the mobility data that you see, partially due to renewed lockdowns, partial lockdowns in some of the states, and partly just concern. The U.S. is seeing some of the worst COVID-19 confirmed case numbers on an absolute basis, the worst in the world, and some of the worst on a per capita basis. Hopefully, by wearing masks and social distancing, the pandemic spread can be slowed without shutting down the entire economy again. There doesn't seem to be an appetite for that, and I don't think it has to happen. So are banks safe? Yes, I think they are. But we'll see as this pandemic progresses. That's episode 305. You can get links to a number of articles that I referenced in this episode at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, if you'd please sign up for my free insider's guide. This is a weekly email I send to that email list with the links to that week's episode. 
as well as an essay on money, investing, and the economy. Some of the best writing I do each week just goes to that email list, and you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.